All right. Welcome to Dr. Chris, the Surgery Guy. I'm your host, Dr. Chris. This is a show where we talk about innovations in general surgery and, frankly, anything that interests me. Today, we're very excited to have Dr. Steve Leeds on the show. He is a board-certified general surgeon at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. He is an esophagologist and specializes in diseases and surgery of the upper GI tract. Dr. Leeds, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, so uh, just a little bit of background. We talked a little bit before the show about some things we're going to talk about, but I guess I'm kind of curious, uh, sort of your background. Uh, where'd you grow up, man? Uh, so originally in New York. I grew up in New York, and when I was, uh, I guess, five, my dad decided he wanted to visit Hollywood, so he picked this up, and we all moved to California, so I did the rest of my growing up in California. Wow, okay. I don't think I knew that. All right, cool. And then, so did you do uh, college out there too, or just uh, high school? Yeah, I did my I did my undergraduate at a small university named Cal Lutheran University, and then I actually did a master's degree in virology and genetics out at San Diego State. Okay. Um, and then went from there. Uh, is that what are the Aztecs? Yeah, Sounds San Diego right. State. Yeah. yeah. All right. Very good. All right. And then, did you say medical school there too, or did I miss that? No, I went to medical school at a Caribbean school called Ross University. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely heard of that. And I did my residency down in um, Phoenix and general fellowship in Oregon. Oh, okay, yeah, Oregon Health Science Center. Um, well, actually, it's the, it's the Providence uh, Healthcare System, which is a, is a private uh, side of that. So kind of the, uh, you know, the Oregon Health Science is more of the school side of university, hospital, and then there's a private university um, okay interesting interesting all right so then um so how did you get interested in sort of the uh, the upper gi tract and esophagus reflux that kind of thing how'd that click for you you know it's a great question because i always thought i was going to be a trauma surgeon and then i thought i was going to be a vascular surgeon and then in residency um we have a built-in rotation to do foregut surgery in oregon so we're residency in phoenix and we had a fourth year, three month rotation in, in Oregon operating with Dr. Lee Swanstrom and Christy Dunes. And so I did that rotation and then was just inspired from then on. And so um, I finished my fourth year, my fifth year, and then ended up doing the fellowship there. Nice. So it wasn't something I planned on, just kind of fell into it. And so from there, did you come directly to Dallas or did you have a stop along the way? No, straight to Dallas, right out of there. Nice. And so you've been working at Baylor University Medical Center ever since? Yes, sir. Seven years next month, I think. Wow. Wow. Very cool. Okay. Um, So it's interesting because as I talk to people, uh, having one job right out of residency that works and clicks uh, isn't all that common. So it's kind of nice that you're able to find something that you're actually still enjoying because I've I've, uh, moved around a little bit in my career. I interviewed Dr. Heidi last week, and he'd been around a little bit, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, cool. That's awesome. Uh, all right. So uh, looking through some of, uh, you've done a lot of uh, publishing and studying, uh, studies rather, uh, been lead investigator on at least six or seven that I saw, um, at least through a quick PubMed search. Uh, but I think one of the most exciting things, and we were talking about this, is as we do surgery in general, uh, a lot of things that surgeons don't want to talk about is complications or adverse events. And going through that, uh, you've developed a couple techniques uh, that uh, really can solve very serious problems. And uh, talking about that here in a second, but basically sometimes uh, 
an anastomosis or a hookup between two parts of the GI tract can break down or it can become inflamed enough and you develop what's called a leak and that can then connect to a different part of the body and those can be extremely difficult to control and uh, you've developed a technique that can, can help with that and has been very successful. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, um, you know, what, as you were saying, when I landed in Dallas, I was trying to hang that shingle and get my practice up and going. Um, and one thing that nobody likes to manage is their complications. And being at a large, you know, 1,200-bed quaternary hospital, we got a lot of regional referrals. Um, and so I was glad I just kind of took on these patients. And um, I'll be honest, it was a resident that went through the literature and found that using the wound vac internally, uh, worked and and there was few publications, but it came out of Germany. Never been done in the United States, rarely done anywhere else. Um, and I've written a couple of things on the history of it, but ultimately I think we got in the game early enough in 2014 um, where we were one of the pioneers of the procedure and now um, have used the internal back to heal leaks of the um, entire GI tract. I've actually used it in the colon rectum, in the small bowel, um, but a lot now um, is concentrated in the stomach and esophagus. Um, and so we can typically bail a patient out from undergoing a large diversion procedure or another resection or you know, chronic leak um, problems. And so um, it has been quite successful, um, which has made us uh, even more uh, prolific in accepting the uh, referrals for leaks and, and complications. And so you know, you start to look through the literature for other things because, you know, the one-trick the one trick pony thing doesn't work all the time, so you got to come up with other things. So, uh, lately, it's how can we develop an algorithm to help manage patients that have, have leaks or complications? Um, and those will encompass, you know, a, a variety of procedures and choosing the best one for each patient. So, um, that's been a big um, area of research here. That's, that's amazing, yeah. Um, so... For the surgeons that are listening, obviously they understand fistulas and leaks and things like that. But for patients that might be listening, um, you know, these are patients that long-term, you know, traditional management is, you know, if possible, maybe you can try to resect it. Or they end up on nothing by mouth for months on end on uh, IV nutrition only. Um, and, you know, it's it's something that's very difficult to uh, to manage long term, and it's very difficult on the patient. Not eating for months is something that is beyond challenging, and you're you know the whole time you're basically crossing your fingers that this eventually having nothing go through it will will eventually heal, and you're speeding that up, up by a factor of how much? Yeah. Well, I mean that's a that's a great point. I mean I think really some of these patients are months to years out. And yeah. so um, figuring out a way to get them, you know, with their GI continuity so they can eat again. Um, I think the first case we did was a patient that was listed for hospice because the leak was unmanageable. Mm -hmm. And then we did a procedure on the patient. And the patient ended up walking out of the hospital eating a regular diet. Um, and so we were sold. It, it, took, it took a few other pretty landmark cases for the hospital to, you know, start backing us and the rest of the department. Um, and now we have full support because it does work so well. Um, but again, you know, I think when you're going to take on complications, um, you got to have all these uh, tools in the tool belt to be able to do multiple procedures. Every leak is different. 
And um, that's, that's where, you know, patients find us on Facebook or on YouTube or something. And they're like, you know, this patient has a similar problem. Well, maybe, but you know, if I catch you a month out of from your leak, as opposed to a year out from your leak, we're going to manage you totally different. And so ironing out all those things is really what's been, I think the most, um, you know, prestigious thing about what we've done here. And it, this is not something that's being done widespread just yet. I mean, this is kind of, it's relatively unique to uh, Baylor University, is it not? Or, or are other people starting to catch on with this? Yeah, I think from, um, from the standpoint of, well, I mean, I've been asked to speak every year at at least two different conferences on how to manage leaks, um, and even internationally. Um, so I would tell you that, that Germany, Turkey, like that, that European area, that they kind of understand the aluminum vac, but as far as an algorithm, um, there's not a lot of people out there that really do this on a regular basis. Um, uh, you know, you can list off a few names uh, of guys that have done it. You know, Eric Pauly, I talk to frequently. Uh, he manages a lot of things endoscopically. The Ohio State group will do it. And so um, you're looking at just, you know, more regional centers. But yeah, nobody's doing this on a grander scale like, like we're doing. So then, kind of take me through it then. So the, the difficult patient gets referred to you and transferred down there. Uh, you know, again, not that we are saying that everyone should do this because this is a very specialized technique, but kind of take me through how, um, you know, I mean, the workup being, you know, you got to prove the fissure, you're trying to identify the fissure endoscopically and whatnot. But once you identify it and you feel like you can, they're appropriate uh, patients, uh, kind of take me through, maybe not every last little trick and, and thing, but... Basically, you're putting, I mean, as the way I understand it anyway, you're putting a sponge into the fistula and then hook that up to basically an NG tube or an endogastric tube or that is, or is, yeah. it, is that too simple? No, no. I mean, it's, it's actually a very simple procedure. The, um, the idea is that you have to do it in an area that has uh, no flow of content. So since uh, we could do it in the duodenum, the amount of bile can clog the sponge. Um, in a colon that's not diverted with colostomy or an ileostomy, it's very difficult having fecal matter pass by the sponge. But the idea is it's just a normal wound back sponge that's constructed to um, a size that uh, lengthwise can be, you know, five to six centimeters, but width-wise you're really limited by the esophagus because um, you can only get so such a, uh, you can only get a size down the esophagus and then the mm -hmm. idea is putting it directly into the leak site and the idea is when you plug it into the negative pressure which yes it's hooked to an NG tube is what we use uh, the negative pressure will essentially collapse down the GI tract but better yet collapse down the leak site so what you're doing is you're gaining source control so the ongoing leak is now stopped the the vac has a very um, unique properties where uh, it seals, so it stops your sores. Uh, the second thing is you can't leave it there. Uh, it's like a Band-Aid, right? You, you don't cut yourself and leave a Band-Aid on there for three weeks. You have to change it, you know, daily, every couple of days. And so you do have to take these patients back to the operating room or the GI suite, put them to sleep, go back down there endoscopically and take the sponge out. And that does labor us, but the idea is that now you pull the sponge out, you debris the wound, you create reperfusion you clean it up and I always describe them as kind of going through two phases. One is kind of the cleanup phase. Uh, and then the second phase is the healing phase. And you can tell, I mean, they get uh, perfusion of the tissue, the 
there's no contamination any further, and then the patient starts to heal. Um, so it does take some time. Uh, typically, we found that uh, leaving the sponge in right around the three to five day mark, um, mark is really the ideal time. You don't want to take it out too soon because it, it, it won't you know, adhere to the tissue and be able to debride it too long because then it gets too attached in there. Right. So ultimately, like is when we admit a patient, you know, I'll, um, I'll do an upper endoscopy or whatever endoscopy is required um, and then do a CT scan to see what the contamination is outside of what I can see endoscopically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then usually twice a week, Monday, Thursday, we're going back and we're reevaluating the leak. And um, one study we did, we looked at whether, you know, if they leak in the chest, is that different than leaking in the belly? And it does seem that the chest leaks seem to heal faster than the abdominal Hmm. Um, leak. And so I don't know if that has to do with the negative pressure, the size of the peritoneal cavity versus the asinum or pleural cavity. Um, that's what we're finding. So we're really about two to three weeks with an esophagus leak and then three to four weeks with a peritoneal leak. Wow. Um, that does sound like a long time to uh, patients that may be listening, but uh, when you're talking about managing the, uh, the leak, Number one, when you're talking about an esophageal leak or even like a, a junction of the stomach in the esophagus leak, um, that can be a, a life-threatening problem, and especially when you have ongoing contents going into the chest. I mean, that's something that, you know, traditionally, you know, needs to be repaired or dealt with within about 24 hours or, frankly, the mortality goes up so high. And, and so taking those patients that uh, have, you know, like you were saying with your first patient on hospice, um, then, you know, taking them to manage them for a couple of weeks, which, you know, certainly arduous, but then they're walking out of the hospital versus, you know, not eating or, you know, still undergoing life-threatening infection. Hmm. Wow. I mean, that's just crazy. So very, very cool stuff. Um, wow. Yeah. So um, that's really cool. So where, where do we go from here? Because, you know, I think as we, we were talking a little bit before the show here, some of the problem is that, you know, it's difficult to get industry involved. Talk a bit about that where, you know, it's easy. Fortunately, these complications are not super common. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of patients that undergo procedures that might cause a leak from whether it's sleeve procedures, anti-reflux procedures, uh, you know, esophageal resections or whatever, you know, most of the time those things go very well in experienced hands. But when there is a problem, you know, it can be devastating. And so, you know, one of the things we're talking about is that industry doesn't really get behind this because, well, frankly, the, the numbers are smaller um, and sort of difficult to get their sort of investment and studies funded and, you know, equipment that can be better optimized, for example. Uh, have you had any success with, with industry at all? I mean, the KCI making the wound back, so, I mean, have they been helpful? Yeah, I mean, that, those are all great points that we were talking about. I think, you know, one of the things that we forget as surgeons, I'm not sure about other fields as much, um, but industry is such an important part of what we do. I mean, we need devices. We need them to stay on the cutting edge. We need them to help us innovate. And so, um, and they usually do that really well. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like you were mentioning, you know, the complications are not very robust. And so the demand is not there. And and in their industry, remember, you know, and not necessarily you, um, Chris, I mean, I know you understand, but yeah. everything comes down to dollars and cents. You know, sure. they're they're looking for these bigger companies are looking for the, you know, the hundred million to five hundred million dollar idea, not the ten million dollar idea. 
Um, that's just not worth their while. And their R&D money has been tied up. You know, they have budgets that are set up five years in advance. So, so you really, to, to, to break that bottle and get into that, to their stream, you really have to hit something that's really mainstream. And um, there's a lot of volume so they can, you know, do a market analysis and come up with some, with some serious value to what you're doing. Now, your question, you know, does KCI back, the interest is phenomenal. I mean, they all come, they want to see it. They want to come and talk, you know, and, and the reps are out there and, you know, they'll, they'll hear something like, hey, you know, send them down to leads. Um, you know, they're doing some really good stuff there. Um, it's just getting them to invest in it is very difficult. Um, and it just down to the scale of it. So for instance, um, you know, uh, if we talked about esophagus lease and we were going to try to fund a study, um, I asked them, you know, just give me some money so we can put together a really nice study and show how well, for instance, the VAC works or our, our algorithm uh, for managing patients works. And, and ultimately what it comes down to is that scalability. And so what the last request I got was, well, if you were going to do an anastomosis prophylactic study, meaning they're getting an esophagectomy or a gastrectomy and you have an anastomosis and you can put this sponge or whatever procedure you want at the anastomosis to prophylactically prevent the heal, uh, prevent the leak. Um, so now you're talking about high numbers, you're talking about multi-institutional. And so you start to get to this point where it's not necessarily feasible. Um, so that's, that's where we're at. I mean, there are uh, interests, but as far as getting it to the point where we can get the, um, the backing, that, that's not, that has not come yet. I've been on a lot of calls. Um, and, you know, one of the things that really ultimately happens is at least once a week, I get a surgeon call me, ask me how to help. And that's, I love that. Um, but about maybe once or twice a month, I get you know, a, an entrepreneur out there is like, I got this idea, I your paper, you know, I want, I want you to be part of this. And, and I'd say to them, you know, that's not really, that's not going to work. Believe me, I've done hundreds of these and, and that, we need to tailor and they don't want to hear it. So um, I think there's interest out there. We just haven't got it nailed down just yet. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I, until someone in the industry has this help them or a family member, you almost, you know, you know, like how do you solve these problems? And and yeah. uh, they're difficult problems to solve because, you know, ultimately, you know, the the perfect device. If you were inventing a device, if you were just to sit down, it's like how can I earn a, a good good income and have a device be extremely successful? And the answer is a device that every single surgery patient needs, that is also disposable. So every new every patient gets that exact same device. Uh, the bear hugger is actually a really good example. Uh, you know, those things, uh, you know, basically for those uh, patients that are listening, it's a device that we use to help warm patients during an operation. So it's basically like a little tiny mattress that, well, not tiny, but it's a, it's a mattress that blows up with warm air. And so it's a device that sits in the OR, blows warm air, and then every single patient gets sort of a new mattress, if you will. It's just like, it's like plastic. It's like stuff you wrap, maybe that would protect stuff in a box, for example, but it circulates warm air. And every single patient gets that during surgery. So the person that invented that device did extremely well because every most patients, any procedure that's longer than a couple of minutes, you know, gets that device. So that's that's amazing, and it is good for patients, but at the same time, great for the inventor. 
when you're talking about a device that is non-disposable and you know only a very very tiny number of patients would use you have to do one of two things either you make it so expensive so that it d becomes worthwhile or you just do it for you know the greater good and you know that's altruistic and, and would be amazing but with industry not super realistic so I don't know how to solve that problem when you when you talk about these sort of more complicated uh, solutions. Um, you know, people like yourself to get out and talk to us general surgeons that are more in the community, learning about some of these things. So at least we have a place to send patients that might need something like this. I mean, that's a start. Um, and then, unfortunately, then you're, you're left kind of putting a device together yourself. I mean, so you know, you can imagine a device that you could just drop into the thing and is all connected. You've got a I'm assuming put the sponge in and get the tube hanging right where you want to be and, and I can just in my mind, you know, with tubes being what they are, tubes come out, patients pull tubes. I mean, that's got to be a bit of a nightmare to manage as well because an NG tube that comes out on a regular patient, you can just reinsert it, but this has to be placed exactly over the sponge. So has, has that been an issue? I'm just kind of curious. Uh, you know, my, only tubes that are important come out, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I would tell you, you know, um, from the standpoint of your hospital and surrounding staff, again, you know, none of this stuff can be made possible without industry. But the other thing is, you know, the staff in the hospital, they have to be aware of what you're doing. So basically what I'm doing is using an NG tube to provide suction at a leak site. Um, and so the, the typically it doesn't come out because it's sealed in there and it'd be pretty hard to get it out. But what happened is, you know, a nurse doesn't know any better, looks at the tube and is like, okay, well, we're starting two feeds today. There's I'll just start feeding it or I'm going to put meds down there or, you know, start aspirating it out. They don't understand what the tube is being used for. So there is a significant amount of education that has to go with, you know, doing a new procedure like this. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. You know, particular floors for these patients now where the nurses are up to speed. And so uh, it, it's a bigger thing than just, you know, hey, I want to try this. And um, that's usually the conversation I'm having with surgeons that called me that have had a leak. And I'm like, look, man, um, let, you know, we got to go through a huge checklist of things um, uh, to, to do before you can, you know, comfortably use this. So, yeah, no, I can managing even just simple tubes is uh, can be a little bit challenging on the floor from whether it's a drain tube or an NG tube or even just a feeding tube. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you have to protect those, uh, well, with your life, actually, as a general surgeon and a nurse, uh, yours being even more important. Very interesting. All right. Well, very cool. Well, so hopefully, uh, anyone out there that might be, uh, interested in, in, uh, working with, uh, Dr. Leeds and, the uh, new device and investment, uh, reach out to him, I guess. <laughs> um, and then yeah. in terms of, um, uh, other things, uh, you know, I know that we met at a conference, uh, four or five years ago, I want to say that um, sort of a, a reflux conference uh, sponsored by the, the company that makes the TIFF device, Endogastric Solutions. And I think at the time you were exploring it, uh, and I've been doing it for quite a while, the, the TIFF procedure, a transoral incisionless fundoplication. And that's one of uh, several uh, devices and procedures that have been designed to help reflux patients that um, are a little more minimally invasive than the traditional Nissen fundoplication. Um, and I was kind of curious because I know that I don't think you do TIFF anymore uh, and kind of favor the link. So I want to talk about that a little bit. And then something that we were talking about earlier is kind of where things are going from here because, um, you know, uh, there are ways to control reflux, but 
how well can they last? That's something we talked about. So kind of go through, uh, we've talked about TIFF on the show a little bit, but for those that don't know, it's an endoscopic technique that allows you to wrap at the GE junction. And so traditionally, the original surgery done open in the 1950s by Dr. Nissen, uh, you would wrap a portion of the stomach around the esophagus, and that kind of creates a, an artificial valve. Well, it's not artificial, it's with the human body, but uh, an unnatural, if you will, valve that then prevents reflux. And then over the years, we started using that more and more with laparoscopic techniques because it became much easier and less morbid for a patient to undergo the procedure. But then we kind of found maybe the side effects might be too much. So it was sort of, you know, maybe they had too much dysphagia or a lot of gas bloating. And so patients that weren't sort of more at the end stage uh, kind of maybe weren't as satisfied with the procedure. So then we started developing more minimally invasive procedures. So there's been things like the endocinch or strata that are designed to alter the GE junction in a way to help prevent that reflux. And so the TIF procedure is one where we actually place suture-like material to fix the stomach in that location and do some wrapping. And it's had some success, uh, well, a lot of success, and I've been pretty successful with it. Um, but there's also been some techniques called, well, one's called the links, which is a magnetic device that goes around the esophagus. Dr. Leeds, I mean, can you, can you talk about that just a little bit, explain that to the folks? Yeah, I think um, uh, you kind of hit on it. When I, when I went through fellowship, it was just on esophageal surgery. As I got out of there, I thought I knew everything. Uh, and you get out and practice and you start dealing with reflux patients. Um, and you start to learn that you don't, you don't know as much as you think you do. And even seven years into practice now, I feel like I may know less. Um, but ultimately, what, you know, what you're talking about is pr procedures, just like I was saying about managing complications. You got to have tools in your tool belt because not every reflux patient is the same. And so, mm -hmm. you know, age-wise, BMI-wise, or, or, you know, they've had a prior surgery. And so it, it really comes down to trying to tailor the operation to a patient. And so um, what I've learned in a lot of, I think in the beginning, even now, is I like to just listen and gain wisdom from others and, and listen to what they're saying. Um, the research is great to show that procedures work. But when, you, when you're a clinician and you're trying to manage your own patients, the procedure of working is, is not necessarily what you're after. You're after patient satisfaction and I think longevity. And so um, somebody comes to you and wants to get off medications, the idea is to give them a procedure that's gonna keep them off medications. And, th and that would be the end point, right? So yeah. um, things that I think is probably the biggest breakthrough, and I wouldn't even say it's a breakthrough because it's been around since the 70s, but surgeons have recognized that just fixing the valve is not the most important thing, that the reflux barrier that we were born with includes so much more than just the valve. And so this is where I've, I've struggled a little bit with the endoscopic only procedures is that you can really only address the valve. Mm -hmm. And so the other large component, probably equally as important as the valve, is the hiatus or where the esophagus passes through the diaphragm. And so the, the, uh, the nemesis, I think, of the surgeon is really the hiatal hernia uh, and trying to repair that. Um, and so surgically, the Lynx procedure would be only a sphincter augmentation procedure, meaning it doesn't account for, for the hiatus 
either, just like the TIF or Stretto or, you know, a long list of endoscopic procedures that have come and gone. And so you have to really think about um, how you're going to treat the patient for longevity, from my standpoint, in um, addressing both the hiatus and the uh, sphincter muscles. So the Lynx procedure is, uh, it's a ring of beads that are magnetized. And the idea is that it's wrapped around the lower esophageal sphincter. And the magnetism is in order to attract the beads back into position. So as the food bolus passes through, the beads will open, allow the bolus to pass, and then the beads will attract themselves and, and pull the sphincter muscle back together in the, in the um, effort to simulate a, um, a normal sphincter muscle. Mm -hmm. And the idea, the fundoplication is a fixed um, uh, wrap where that doesn't uh, augment with a food bolus, but the, the Lynx device will. And so the idea is that you put the Lynx device in and you can, you know, sidestep some of these side effects that the fundoplication has, has been notorious for. So it's been a, yet again, another tool in the tool belt. Now, as far as me doing TIF, I did take it on. We did it for a while and I just think my patient population wasn't a good mix because I'll see patients that are further down the line away from what we call this gap patient. And the gap patient, um, maybe we don't talk about it enough. I think everybody's kind of aware of it, but it's that patient where the medicine isn't working anymore, but they don't really want to go on the surgery or maybe that's too invasive. And so these in the middle ground is really considered the gap. And I think the TIF fits well in the gap area. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't see a lot of the gap patients. So I moved away from the TIF um, just because I think, you know, if you're not doing it in high volume, it's hard to be good at. Um, and so I, I stopped doing it. Well, and, and true with many, many procedures, but yeah, agreed. Yeah. Uh, any procedure that a surgeon does, you want to go to somebody that does it in high volume. Yeah. So that, that's kind of my take on where I'm at now. So I, I usually do only surgical procedures now where I go in there and make sure I recreate the hiatus to what I believe uh, a natural or more reflux preventative state would be, and then do something to augment the, the valve, which would be, in my case, either the Lynx device or a fundoplication in the partial or complete um, uh, uh, um, type. So, yeah, the the partial wrap being, uh, do you use toupee or do you use more of a a door or do you like, what do you use for the partial? You know, um, I'm actually doing my own internal randomized study with, with mesh, no mesh, and then I'm making sure everybody gets a toupee, but I've actually moved on to this Watson technique with, with, which is an anterior 180. Um, it's, um, seems to be effective. You know, I, I think one of the things we could, you know, if you talk about the two biggest debates, in reflux surgery is do you use mesh at the hiatus or not yep. and what kind of do you create and I think if you look hard enough you can find data in either direction to support you which usually means that one's not better than the other and so uh, well you know it's interesting that, back to my, yeah yeah so the, the mesh thing for me is uh, my problem is that when I've talked to other surgeons that use mesh the technique for putting mesh in is widely variable and I've seen people, and I don't think people are doing this as much anymore, but back five, seven years ago, uh, you know, they were tacking it in, you know. Um, and then yep. they, 
they'd sew it in or maybe just kind of kind of loosely sew it in and then there's the the mesh that goes almost 360 degrees with like a little kind of C cut out for the esophagus um, and then there's just sort of posteriorly placed mesh and there's so many different techniques to do it that I don't think you can compare one mesh study to another mesh study without really understanding exactly how the mesh was placed like you know for me and surgeons uh, again for patients we all have a little bit of an ego clearly what I do is the best thing and <laughs> Uh, so basically, you know, I do a horizontal mattress uh, suture, putting the mesh in place um, over uh, the, the, the hiatus. So basically it's kind of, it goes mesh, muscle, muscle, mesh, and then back through. And so the idea is that it doesn't tear through the muscle, because that's one of the big problems. And, um, you know, I really like the technique, and anecdotally, because, you know, I'm a community surgeon, I don't really publish studies, I haven't seen a whole lot of recurrences. So I'm pretty hopeful that that's the way to go, and I haven't seen a lot of downside to doing that. I've, you know, Dr. Idy, for example, he kind of had patients that had a little bit extra dysphagia. He didn't like that. Um, and, you know, there's not been a great mesh study yet that says this is the way to go. Um, and so I'm still waiting for that data, but gosh, I still believe in it. You know, it's sort of, for me, I think it's, it's the way to go long term. Uh, with a biosynthetic mesh placed at the hiatus, sort of in a mattress situation where it's really adherent to to the muscle, but you know, again, that's just my take and kind of the the community experience. Um, but I'm looking forward to, to your study on the the mesh versus no mesh. How do you place it? Out of curiosity. Yeah, I do exactly. Yeah, I mean, you described exactly how I do it. Nice. Um, that's how. I do it. And the the one thing that you didn't mention, um, it, not only does the technique vary widely, but the type of mesh varies. Sure. Um, and the we hang our hat on our mesh, our studies about mesh that aren't even around anymore. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, the inspiration for a study is, is everybody looks for the holy grail of how to fix this, but ultimately when it comes down to it, it's going to be a five-year study, which, you know, by the time you publish and everything, it's going to be seven to eight years. And then who knows what surgery looks like that far out. And right. it's just, you know, is a study like that really worthwhile? So I, I don't know, but I, I use Phasix ST now, which is a integrated into the into the hiatus almost exactly how you said horizontal mattress and um, uh, you know it's it's tacked right against the muscle um so i, I think that's the way to go um but who knows i mean right who knows? no there's there's so many things that we uh, uh when you look at the history of medicine there's things that we did that we thought were great ideas that turned out to be well unfortunately not as good as we thought and uh, yeah. We used a lot, uh, you might be too young for this, but when I first started, we used a lot of Gore-Tex mesh. Um, and Gore-Tex mesh is, unfortunately, it's a terrible product in the mesh situation because, um, you know, well, for lots of reasons, but the infection rates were too high. It doesn't really stick to anything, so it never, ever really gets incorporated. Um, and in only very limited situations is it useful. Um, but we used it like crazy because we thought it was, we thought it was amazing because it really wasn't yeah. very bioactive and it wasn't going to cause infections. And, you know, and then we learned... You know, so that's that's where we have to keep progressing, and we have to keep looking at what we're doing, and is what we're doing the best thing. And so sometimes we have to look real close in the mirror and say, you know, not maybe that wasn't the way to go. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting as you grow, and that, it takes humility to be a surgeon. Uh, you, when you meet your surgeon, that you may not think they're very humble, but we are. <laughs> Believe me. Yeah. Uh, if you don't look yourself in the mirror, then uh, that's going to be a problem. So um, yeah. So the longevity of the, of the anti-reflux surgery. That's I think exactly, and, you know, actually Glenn and I talked about the exact same thing, is like how do we 
you know, the wrap, I think we're getting real close on. Whether, you know, you do a good, you know, loose Nissen frontal application, that's actually still a really good surgery. I don't have issue with that surgery. But when I've done redo surgery, when I've gone back for patients that had recurrent symptoms, you know, it's almost always that the hiatus has recurred, that the, the hiatal hernia has recurred, and they, they, that's what really needs to be repaired. It's pretty rare that I actually have to redo the wrap. And the TIF procedure, I've had good results with it longevity-wise. Um, I don't have as much experience with, with the links, um, but the data seems to say that it, would, it holds up pretty well as well. And so um, I think we've gotten the control of the wrap. I think we've gotten that at least figured out. And there's different options for different patients, um, particularly, uh, you know, a sleeve patient that gets reflux. That's something that isn't talked about a whole – well, I mean, in, the, in surgery it is, but – uh, patients may not know this. The sleeve, you know, generates uh, a sleeve procedure for weight loss surgery generates a smaller stomach, and that increases the pressure, and that makes the patient more prone to reflux. So if they happen to have a hiatal hernia, or if they happen to have reflux to begin with, and we don't address that properly, they can get a lot of reflux, and it can be pretty darn miserable. And you know, unfortunately, the Nissen doesn't work anymore because that part of the stomach's gone. Uh, the TIF procedure could work, but unfortunately, there's never enough room in the stomach to do it. And so I think for, you know, for sleeve patients, for those types of patients, you know, the links, I think, could be a tremendous option. Have you, have you used that in that situation? Yeah, actually, we're just about to publish our, um, our findings for sleeves, uh, redo fund applications, you know, um, prior gastric surgery. And it actually works really well, but, you know, again, just with any anti-reflux patient, you just got to select them correctly. So, you know, with the links, you know, dysphagia is a little bit of an issue. So you got to have good motility. Um, you know, patients, you know, the other thing you really want to be concerned with is uh, weight recidivism, which is regaining their weight back. Um, you don't want to try to put a links in a, you know, a BMI of 45 or something like that. So um, you got to select these patients correctly. If you do that, it seems like they do just as well. And the findings we're going to publish is, we looked at a cohort of the Lynx patients that had no prior gastric surgery, so just kind of like a, our case control. And then we compared the, the sleeve patients to that and, and the, the need for an explant or the need for uh, dilation or medication to mitigate any dysphagia was exactly the same in both groups if you continue to have very strict guidelines on how, who you pick. So it can work. You just got to you gotta go to the right, right surgeon, right. Uh, pick, you know, Patients just need to be picked properly. So um, there's there's good um, uh, future for links in those settings when, when the fundus is not present um, and you have to augment the sphincter otherwise. Yeah, and it's a really good example of not one-size-fits-all medicine. And so really identifying yeah. which patient has the, the need for something you can provide. And as a general surgeon, this is just advice to general surgeons, if you're not the person, don't be afraid to send to someone like Dr. Leeds or someone else that has the expertise in what the patient actually needs. Uh, don't try and shoehorn them into what you do. Um, that may sound a little preachy, but uh, you know it, it's humbling. It's hard to do as a surgeon sometimes. Uh, we do have uh, a lot of expertise. We've done a lot of training, and so it's, it's difficult to admit that you might not have the tools necessary to take care of the patient. So again, quick look in the mirror. Are you the best person for the job? And and if not, then, you know, make some new friends. There's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah, very cool. Um, all right. Well, Dr. Leeds, I want to thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, if you have something else you'd like to talk about, we can talk about that. Otherwise, 
Uh, we might go ahead and uh, wrap up here. Uh, I think we've covered some interesting topics. I think in terms of maybe getting industry involvement in smaller niche, uh, but potentially really helpful for the patients that need them type stuff, some sort of program like that could be tremendously uh, important and valuable for patients in the future. Uh, talking a little bit about alternate therapies for reflux and where we need to go and what the real problem is, which, again, I think we have the ability to make a wrap. I think we have the ability to control reflux, but how do we make it last? And I agree with you completely. I think the answer is controlling the hiatus, controlling uh, that hiatal hernia. If we figure out how to get that being a long-lasting long cure, I think that long-lasting surgery, rather, uh, I think that's the, the, the way to go. Yeah, I, thank you, Chris, for having me on. I, and I want to say I really appreciate you doing this. One of the things that as a closing statement is um, we need to be humble. We need to talk to each other. We all need to be friends. We need to communicate. And that's what, that's what makes our clinical practice better. So I really appreciate what you're doing, and thanks for having me. Cool. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, so thank you very much. This has been Dr. Chris, the uh, surgery guy. I appreciate you for listening, and we will see you again in a week or two. Thank you very much. I do want to give a shout out to Approaching Nirvana for the rights to music you heard during this podcast. Shout out to Andrew over there, and you can find their music at www.approachingnirvana.com. 